All right, everybody. Welcome back to AP Human Geo in 20 Minutes. I am your host, Mr. Linder. This is our first live episode of Season 2. We're going to be talking about what's going to be happening on your Unit 2 test population and migration. Without further ado, let's dive in. Um, So I'm going to be going through the study guide here. Uh, I'm going to save the first bullet point, understanding the demographic transition to uh, later on the episode. Uh, So let's start with what is the difference between arithmetic density and physiological density? What are the drawbacks of each? Um, Arithmetic density is number of people per square mile, number of people per square kilometer. Um, Physiological density is number of people per arable unit of land. So with arithmetic density, if I don't take into account scale, um, I could be, you know, looking at a country as large as the United States. It's got like 70 people per square mile, but that's not really telling me a whole lot of the story. Um, if I look at, you know, cities, obviously that number is going to be a lot higher. If I'm looking at rural areas, obviously that number is going to be a lot lower. So I got to think about the scale, the type of place I'm looking at. Physiological density is telling me whether I can uh, feed my population or not. Um, sometimes countries with a high population will have a high physiological density because they have a lot of people. Other times, small countries that don't have a lot of arable land will have a high physiological density. But regardless, I want to try to have a low physiological density so I can try to feed my people. Uh, Population densities in Asia and Europe. Um, First of all, uh, going along with the next bullet point, there are four uh, regions in the world where we have major population clusters, South Asia, East Asia, and Southeast Asia, along with Europe, specifically Western Europe. There's two minor population clusters along the east coast of the U.S. and the west coast in Africa. Um, But the differences between Asia and Europe, mainly most people that live in Europe are urban and most people that live in Asia are rural. Even though um, three of the four largest regions in terms of population density are in Asia, most of those people are in rural places. Um, What affects the natural increase rate in countries? Understand what the NIR uh, means for different countries. So first of all, uh, natural increase rate is going to be affected by a lot of things. It's going to be affected by where a country falls on the demographic transition model. Countries that are lower, stage two, stage three, are going to have higher natural increase rates. Countries that relate stage three, stage four, stage five, are going to have lower natural in- increase rates. Um, oftentimes, uh, too, with natural increase, we are looking at opportunities for women. So if women are only expected to grow up and get married and have children, then oftentimes natural increase rates are going to be a lot higher because those women usually don't have access to education, uh, birth control, and that sort of thing. Uh, Contrast that with late stage three, stage four, stage five countries where women uh, have educational opportunities. So oftentimes they're delaying marriage, therefore delaying childbirth, um, and they're having fewer children, which means natural increase rate is uh, decreasing. What is the difference between push and pull factors? What are some examples of each happening into some migration stuff? Remember, a push factor is just something that induces you to leave a place, and a pull factor is something that gets you to go to a location. So remember, I've got economic, political, and environmental uh, push and pull factors. Economic being uh, the one that usually pops up most. Most of the times that people leave or move places is for jobs or for economic purposes. Um a push factor for a job could be a lack of jobs, whereas the flip side, a pull factor could be um, a, a uh, high availability of jobs. Um, cultural factors, push factors could be um, like a repressive government, uh, no freedom of religion, no freedom of speech, uh, genocide, ethnic cleansing. Cultural pull factors could be things like democracy and freedom and equal rights, uh, freedom of speech, freedom of religion. And then with environmental uh, push and factors. A push factor could be something like a flood or a hurricane, volcano, any natural disaster. 
I mean, pool factor could be warmer weather, uh, coastal weather, um, away from natural disasters, anything like that. A couple of vocab ter- terms here. Transhumanist is just the seasonal migration of livestock. Um, but with that, we were talking about nomadic people and how they move. Um, so generally in warmer, um, uh, warmer seasons, people try to go up to the mountains where it's a little bit cooler. And then in cooler seasons and winter, they try to make it down to lowlands and places that are not high uh, up in the mountains where they can be warmer. But all the time they are moving with their livestock, so they are migrating with their animals. What is meant by ecumene? That is the livable portion of Earth's surface. So um, I can't build cities uh, in the Himalaya mountains, or at least uh, not cities that are you know massive million people cities. Um, so there's only a... Um, you know, a certain amount of land that can actually be settled for massive permanent human settlement. What is an example of an intervening opportunity? Um, especially imagine this, um, like settlers, American settlers going out west. Um, they set out from like, let's say St. Louis or something like that in Missouri, and they're on their way out to uh, Oregon or Washington or California. And on their way out there, they stop in Omaha, Nebraska. They've got a lot of land that is, um, have been unclaimed, and they decide that this opportunity is too good to pass up. And so in route to their final destination, they actually stop because of an intervening opportunity. Something, uh, something better happened along the way. When has the United States seen the greatest immigration in terms of raw numbers? That would be the last 15 or 20 years. Um, we have always had massive waves of immigration. Um, and percentage-wise, that might differ, but in terms of actual just raw numbers of people, um, it has been in the last 15 or 20 years. Be able to explain the differences between an S-curve and a J-curve, how they're typically used. In this unit, they are used with population. So an S-curve is showing me population over time, especially for a country that is in stage four or stage five of the demographic transition model. Um, I would be able to see them go from a very, very low population through their growth stages and stages excuse me, two and three, and then I would start to see that population level off in stage four, creating the S curve. The J curve is going to show me human population over time. So from the dawn of human beings to today, our population growth looks like a J curve. From uh, the dawn of whenever to 1800, it took us that long to get 1 billion people onto the surface of the earth. Since that time, we have added close to 6.5 billion people Um, So from 1800 to 2019, um, we have definitely exponentially grown, which is why our growth curve in terms of um, all of human history looks more like a J curve. How have countries attempted to control total population numbers? Um, In certain cases, they have limited the number of children uh, that um, people are allowed to have. So in China, um, there was the one-child policy, which limited uh, families to one child. Um, otherwise, they had to pay a tax or a fine. Um, there have been other cases where um, sterilizations have been used, such as in places like India, uh, to try to keep the number of people down. Um, oftentimes, there uh, might be some sort of economic incentive or um, something along those lines, but it's always a touchy subject, especially when religion and politics and um, personal choice uh, get mixed, but um, definitely the one-child policy is probably the best example of um, that. Understand Malthusian theory and why it didn't come to fruition the way that Thomas Malthus thought it would. Follow up with that the next thought is uh, what are the beliefs of Neo-Malthusians? So remember, Malthus was an economist who was around during the Industrial Revolution. I mean, he basically believed that 
uh, people were um, populating the earth so much that soon our population would exceed its resources. We would all live miserable, famine, disease-infested lives, and millions and millions of people would die unless we stopped having kids because we just weren't going to be able to produce enough uh, to satisfy everybody. Obviously, he was wrong about that. We've got, um, again, over 7 billion people in the world today, and um, we produce enough food to feed 10 or 11 billion people. And that's where neo-Malthusians would come in. So they'd say, yeah, okay, Malthus was wrong, technically. We are able to um, take care of everybody. Uh, however, these resources are definitely not distributed equally. Um, we talked about in the United States how uh, we consume about 25% of the world's energy resources, even though we make up only 4% of the world's people. Um, other neo-Malthusians would say, you know, in places like the United States, uh, most people that have HIV AIDS are able to, uh, to access some sort of um, healthcare or medicine that they can kind of uh, still live and operate with a disease. Whereas in places like sub-Saharan Africa, um, it's taken out uh, massive chunks of their population. Um, there are people all around the world who don't have access to clean air and clean water and good healthcare and food. And even though we produce uh, enough food to feed 10 or 11 billion people, there's about 1 billion people every night who go to bed hungry. Um, so neo-Malthusians would say that Malthus arguments can be applied um, to today, but it's not just food. It's all these other resources and um, all these other inequalities that are showing that are uh, helping um, uh, certain groups of people live lives that are not um, not very successful. Um, understand the use of population pyramids, know how to read them, and how to determine population patterns. Remember, a population pyramid gives me a snapshot of a uh, country's population at a given moment in time, but it tells me much, much more than that. Um, it tells me uh, whether the country is shrinking or growing. Um, it can tell me um, if I've got you know a situation like in China or uh, India where there have been a lot of sex-selective abortions, and I've got a lot more males than I have females. Um, it can show the scars of wars, such as uh, Russia's in World War II. It can show me the baby boom uh, in the United States. So uh, population pyramids aren't just showing me what a population looks like in a moment of time. They're showing me the history of that population. Um, I can see if a country's going through uh, phases of demographic momentum. Um, I can see if a country's on its way, like Japan, to uh, being you know half, half its size in 100 years. Um, but remember, each individual rectangle is an age cohort, and on one side is females, on one side is males. Each age cohort is a five-year um, grouping of people, so it starts with uh, people aged zero to four, and then five to nine, and on and on and on. Um, and so that's what a population pyramid is showing and telling me. What is meant by carrying capacity, and what is meant by overpopulation? Uh, and uh, from what we need to understand, it's basically the same thing. If you exceed your carrying capacity, you are overpopulated. And carrying capacity is basically the amount of people that a given uh, land or given area can sustain based on the resources that are available and the number of people that are there. So if you have 200 people living in your community, but you only have enough resources to feed and house and clothe 150 of them, then you are overpopulated. You are over your carrying capacity. Whereas if you were in a city of 10 million people, but you have enough resources and everything for 15 million, then you are not overpopulated. You are not over your carrying capacity. Just remember, overpopulation has nothing to do with land and has everything to do uh, with resources. What are the different types of migration? Know the definitions as well as examples of each. Um, so you've got internal migration, which is within a country. You've got international migration, which is country to country. With internal migration, 
Um, remember, I've got interregional, one region to another region, and I've got intra-regional, which is uh, within one region. Um, so, for example, um, just kind of looking at, at my family history, um, I have a grandmother who, or sorry, a great grandmother who um, migrated here from Slovakia. So she emigrated from Slovakia. She left Slovakia in an international migration to the United States. She immigrated to the United States. Um, eventually, my family settled in Cincinnati, Ohio. That's in the Midwest. From there, I moved to Arlington, Virginia. That is an internal, inter-regional move because I moved from one region to another uh, within the country. Um, if I were to ever move out to Loudoun County, which uh, hopefully will never happen, uh, that would be an intra-regional move. That would be a movement uh, within the same region, just to a different place within that region. Um, what is meant by doubling time? How, does ca how is it calculated? Doubling time is uh, the number of years that a population may take to double in size. And remember, to get that, um, I uh, take the number 70 uh, over the NIR. And remember, I get the NIR by doing crude birth rate minus crude death rate um, divided by 10. Um, what is meant by total fertility rate? What affects total fertility rate? Remember, TFR is the average number of uh, children that a woman is going to have during her birthing years. That's ages 15 to 45. Um, again, if your country is uh, looking at a TFR of 2.1, that means you are basically at replacement level growth. Your country is neither growing nor shrinking. Um, if it is above uh, 2.1, that means your country is growing. If it is below 2.1, it generally means your country is shrinking. Um, that's in terms of... Uh, Natural birth, not talking about uh, migration or anything like that. Um, again, some of the things that affect TFR are some of the same things that affect NIR. Um, do women have uh, rights to control their uh, reproductive lives? Do women have access to jobs and education and things like that? How developed economically is the country? Um, generally, uh, the more developed, the more education women have, the less children they have. And part of that is personal choice, but part of that too, remember, is that um, back in stage one countries, you know, you had to have 10 children to hope that two of them made it to adulthood. Now with modern medicine and things like that, um, I don't have to have 10 children and hope that two of them make it to adulthood. Uh, for the most part, most children that are born, whether it's in a family of two or a family of 15, uh, most of them make it to adulthood. Uh, what are characteristics of refugees? Uh, generally, refugees are people who are moving by foot. They're only carrying um, what personal belongings they can uh, carry on their person at that time. Um, oftentimes, uh, refugees are children. Um, oftentimes, refugees are women. Um, again, usually refugees are not carrying proper uh, documentation with them because oftentimes when you are forced to leave, it is a kind of split-second decision. You have to grab what is around you and you have to go, which makes it very difficult then for refugees to enter uh, their country of choice or their country that they are trying to seek asylum in um, because they do not have that proper documentation. All right. Um, in our textbook, we looked at a guy named Ravenstein and some of his theories on migration. Um, Ravenstein had a couple laws. We haven't uh, gotten to them in a whole lot of detail in class. Um, some of them are like um, every migration creates a return or counter-migration. Um, for example, uh, we talked very briefly about the concept of white flight. So um, in the United States in the 19... Uh, it started in the early 1900s, but uh, again, in the 1940s and 1950s, you had a lot of African-American families who left the South and moved to cities in the North. And as a result of that, a counter-migration to that 
was a lot of white people leaving cities in the north and moving to suburbs in the north. Um, so it's not necessarily a return migration, but it is a counter migration. Um, another one of Ravenstein's theories on migration deals with, uh, in general, uh, migrants are going to travel a short distance. Um, again, especially if they're traveling on foot, um, they don't want to have to cover thousands and thousands of miles. Um, I can look at the map of the United States and look at where we have seen the highest number of unauthorized immigrants, uh, Texas and California, which are border states. Um, so obviously, um, especially unauthorized migrants that make it to the U.S., you don't want to um, have to go, you know, a, a huge distance. So, um, you, you know, you're just going to um, get to where you need to go as quickly as you can and, and probably try to stay there rather than try to move hundreds or thousands of miles. Uh, describe Zelensky's theories on migration. Um, so Wilbur, Wilbur Zelensky took the demographic transition model and he applied um, migration movements to it. Um, so again, in stage one, most people are practicing transhumanists. They are just following food. They're following seasonal migrations. They're, um, those are the only reasons that they are migrating. In stage two, as a country industrializes and we need less farmers and the jobs have started to relocate towards cities, um, you start to see more people uh, leave rural areas and go to urban ones. In stages three, uh, and sorry, also in stage two, uh, internationally, most people are leaving your country because as your country is growing, there's just not enough resources to sustain the population, not enough jobs to sustain the population, so people leave the country. In stages three and four, that is where internationally your country becomes a destination. People want to move to your country when you are stage three and stage four, just like many people want to move to the U.S. today. But internally, um, there are two different waves. Now people are moving from cities to suburban areas um, as people like the, the space and the safety and the schools and that sort of thing, moving for cultural factors. And also uh, more recently in stage four and five uh, countries, we've started to see people move from urban places to rural places as they like, uh, again, the life of the outdoors and the space and being away from the city and that sort of thing. Um, what is meant by globalization? How does, how does this affect your life? Uh, globalization we covered in Unit 1 is the interconnectedness of people and places and things. Um, again, the idea that uh, you know cheap jobs in certain places are going to attract uh, certain types of migrants, especially when you talk about like guest workers moving to Europe, or you talk about the move um, of... Uh, American manufacturing to uh, third world countries to facilitate the rural to urban movement in those places. Um, those could all be examples of how globalization uh, affects us in the population and migration unit. What is demographic momentum and how does it affect population? Remember, this is the idea that even though your population, your crude birth rate is declining, your population is actually increasing. So we see demographic momentum specifically in stage three of the demographic transition. Um, even though uh, birth rates are coming down, there's still a big gap between birth rates and death rates. So population is still growing. And it means that you need to pass through that growth stage as quickly as you possibly can to slow that demographic momentum so your country does not become overpopulated. What is the dependency ratio? That is the number of people that are too old or too young uh, to work. So a high elderly dependency ratio means you have a lot of old people. A high youth dependency ratio means you have a lot of young people. And you want more working age people than you have uh, high youth or high elderly. And where is the population center of the U.S.? How, is, how has this changed over the last 200 years? Remember, that is basically an average of where everyone in the country lives. So 
population center of the U.S. today is somewhere near the geographical center, somewhere in like Missouri or Kansas. Um, historically, though, that uh, population center has moved steadily south and west. Most of our early settlers were in the New England colonies, um, and from there, our country's population has definitely spread more and more west and more and more south. Um, so the FRQ, uh, the FRQ is going to be a migration FRQ. Um, again, we are going to be looking um, at uh, a bunch of FRQs over the course of the year. This one is one that everyone is going to be looking at. Uh, you guys need to understand uh, who refugee or what a refugee is. What are some political, social, and environmental push factors that create refugees? Political and social uh, push factors would both fall under that cultural um, push factor umbrella. So you might need to kind of separate those out a little bit. What might be a political um push factor versus a social push factor. What are some countries that have produced many of the world's refugees in recent years and why people are fleeing these countries? Remember, we did a little case study looking at um, like Syria and the Syrian civil war and wars in Afghanistan, um, Iraq with ISIS. Um, so it might be a good idea to kind of refresh yourselves on what's going on in those countries. What are the economic impacts that refugees can have on the countries they move to? Uh, remember again, um, these can be both positive and negative. So think about uh, Europe and the population shifts that Europe is going through and why maybe an influx of younger people might be a good thing. Also, you know, why might that be a bad thing? And how could you know, a vast number of people over overwhelm uh, a, a system that maybe you know, gives out uh, certain things to its citizens and, and people that live in the country that might economically strain it? All right. Uh, quick break here, and then I'll be right back to talk about the demographic transition. I'm sorry, we're way over our 20-minute mark, but a lot of stuff to cover here. All right, so um, last thing, and I apologize for going way over the 20-minute mark, um, but the demographic transition model is obviously something that is very, very important to this unit. Um, remember, with the demographic transition model, we basically have five stages. Um, if your country is in stage one, um, that means that uh, there are very, very high birth rates, very, very high death rates, and so very, very low population growth. There are currently no countries in the world today that are stage one. There are individual people or groups of people, people in the Amazon rainforest, people in the African Serengeti and places like that, um, but no countries in stage one. Remember, because uh, death rates are so high, they almost match birth rates. Uh, it means that the population isn't growing. Um, and life is pretty miserable if you're in a stage uh, one society. Stage two is where we start to see a lot of growth. Um, that's generally when countries start to industrialize. Um, it's also when that industrialization occurs is when um, agriculture becomes more productive, so I've got more uh, and better food. Um, it's also when medicine becomes more widely available. So now women are you know, still continuing to have eight, nine, ten kids, but instead of only two of them making it to adulthood, now I'm having five, six, seven, eight of them making it to adulthood. So Death rates are drastically decreasing, but birth rates are staying high, which means my growth rate is uh, very, very high. And it's a challenge for countries to try to pass through stage two as quickly as they can. Stage three is the demographic momentum stage. That is where, um, despite uh, falling birth rates, population is still increasing. And the reason population is still increasing is because um, all these people that have now made it to adulthood are uh, having children, whether it's just two children or six children. Um, but also because there's still a huge gap between birth rates and death rates. And as long as that gap between birth rates and death rates exists, population is still going to uh, increase even if birth rates are falling. Um, countries that are in stage three today would be countries like China, Brazil, um, Mexico, Argentina, places like that. Uh, then we've got stage four. 
that's where my birth rates and death rates are finally back in sync with one another, which means that my population is now stabilized. It is now uh, neither growing nor shrinking. It is a high population. Um, if you look at countries like the United States, Great Britain, France, you know they, they have a lot of population, uh, but it's not a growing population. Um, finally, we have stage five. And there are a few countries today that are in stage five. Uh, Japan is the best example of a stage five country because their total fertility rates are so low, uh, close to 1.3. Um, and because they are so low, their population is actually uh, decreasing, which is not a place that we want to be um, either. You know, people have found that it's a lot easier to decrease birth rates. It's a lot harder to increase birth rates um, and to incentivize people to, uh, to do that. So that's what's happening in stage five. Um, make sure that we can apply a population pyramid to all of those stages. Um, remember, in stage one, it's going to look like there's almost no top with you know everyone uh, between the ages of zero and 40. Um, with stage two, you get more of your traditional pyramid-type looking pyramid where the base is far wider than the top. Stage three, the base is still going to be wider than the middle ages, but not by much. Stage four is when it's relatively equal from ages zero to 60, and then it narrows to the top to the older population. And stage five is where it looks more like a tornado or a top or something like that, where it's very, very heavy in uh, population in the older uh, population ranges, but uh, not so much in the younger population ranges. So make sure we know all that. Um, best of luck on your test. I hope this helps, and we'll see you next time.